0: Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. We'll open your Bibles to Malachi. If you don't know where that is, uh, go to the Old Testament and turn left, and it is the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, We're going to read verses uh, 1 through 5 of chapter 1. We read the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Amen? (laughs) All right. Um, Anyone here ever just feel like a little under the weather, a little sick, a little headache, a little nauseous? When I feel a little sick, I have a little headache, feel a little nauseous. Uh, um, I'm a normal, reasonable, rational person, so I go on WebMD to find out what terminal illness I have. (laughs) Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah. You're like, "Uh uh-oh, I don't have long to live. Uh, Nine times out of ten, you know what I just need to do? All good answers. I just need to drink some water. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever drank a glass of water and you're like, oh, feel great, feel better. It's so obvious, but it's easy to forget. When we read this passage, I don't think we immediately think specifically about what it is but it is kind of like a drink of water for us when we are spiritually unhealthy when we're spiritually sick we need living water we need to be reminded of an essential important truth of scripture what is the first thing that God says in this passage he says I have what loved you I have loved you We should drink deeply from this resource. Remembering that the Lord loved his people in the time of Malachi, and the Lord loves his people now. Malachi uh, is a prophet written, or a prophet who who prophesied to the nation of Israel at an interesting time in in Israel's history. They're kind of in the middle right now. You guys have heard of the first good king of Israel. What's his name? Good. David? Wake up a little bit. Like, that's the easiest question I'm going to ask you. The first good king of Israel is David, and David is a good king, and his son Solomon, although he ends his tenure as king poorly, he builds the house of God, the first temple in Jerusalem, and in some ways Israel is at the height of its power, its fame, its spiritual strength, its doing well, and then we read the rest of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, and as we read those books, we see this continual spiritual decline of Israel. Some good kings, but many, many bad kings. And then then the kingdom is divided, and you have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And again, over and over and over again, you read that kings didn't honor God, and they led the people in unrighteousness and wickedness, and they worshiped false gods, and they did all kinds of awful things. And the prophets say over and over and over again to the people, if you continue to persist in unrighteousness, you're going to be disciplined. The northern kingdom is completely wiped out by the Assyrians. And the southern kingdom is taken into captivity, into exile. The Babylonians come in. They certainly kill a lot of people. They destroy the temple of God. They destroy the city walls. They end the kingly line. And they bring a bunch of people who have lived in Jerusalem their entire lives, or in the the area around Jerusalem, out into this pagan area where Yahweh is not worshipped, where people don't abide by the law. And they stay there for 70 years. You still with me? Yes. Okay. After 70 years, by God's power, working through King Cyrus, the people return to Jerusalem. They spent 70 years in discipline. As the prophet said, that was going to happen. They go back to Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the wall. And Malachi is speaking to that group of people. Now, here's the thing. They expected... For their Messiah to come and to usher in the new age. But right now, even though they've returned to the land, they're not wealthy, they're not famous, they don't have influence. There's this sense in which they can look back to this former glory. The time of David, when Israel was big and strong and famous and had influence and honored the Lord and was a priestly nation. And they look at where they're at now and they realize that they don't have everything that they lost. They know there's future glory coming. They're awaiting a Messiah. What's his name? What's his name? Jesus. Jesus. (laughs) They're waiting for Jesus, and they're looking back to their former glory. They're in between a good time and a great time, and they're trying to reconcile the situation that they're in. They're dissatisfied. They're unhappy. And dissatisfaction has bred to what? Disobedience. Have you ever been dissatisfied in your life? And then it's led to disobedience. A few honest people. I have been dissatisfied sometimes in my life, and that has led to disobedience. Israel was probably twelve to 17,000 people at this time. For, con- for context, uh, Hermosa Beach is a little bit less than 20,000 people. It was small. It was not powerful. It was obscure. And then Malachi comes and speaks to them. He speaks to a people who are unhappy. They're in between two good times. They're in the middle. And there are many ways in which our situation mirrors their situation. We come in between the cross and the throne. We come in between Jesus' first advent, his first coming, and his second coming. We know that at the cross, Jesus goes and he dies on our behalf, and he defeats death, and he defeats sin, and he makes it possible for people to be saved But you know what? Do people still die today? Do they still get sick? Do we still have division? Are we ever unhappy? Are we ever dissatisfied? (laughs) So in one sense, we know that God has already acted decisively on behalf of his people. But in another sense, we can only look forward with future hope to a time when everything will be made right. Do you believe that Jesus is coming again? So in Malachi, we, we read about these disputations where God says something to his people. The people respond with a question and then God answers their question. And the Israelites, their, their questions uh, come from a place of pain and dissatisfaction and missed expectations and confusion and anxiety. They bring before God in the form of bold questions, all of these feelings, and God can handle it. And he answers them in very unflinching ways. Malachi is very much a book about real talk. God says, hey, this is something that is wrong with you. And the people say, well, here's how we feel. And then God gives them hard answers. Just as a side note, if you're frustrated with God, if you're angry with God, if you're confused, if you're wondering where God is at, he can handle those feelings. I'm not saying that those feelings are justified. I'm saying he can handle them. We see that in Malachi. The people cry out in pain and God responds. And it's unflinching. Now, what's interesting about our passage today is it's a little bit different than all these other disputations. I'm going to show you a few others. If we go to one six, we can read this. God says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? Or the next one. And if I'm a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priest, who despise my name. Next one. The Lord says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Next one. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your father, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Show me one more. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. Over and over again, the Lord says to his people, here's something that you've done that's dishonorable. It's a people group that has become stingy and dissatisfied and offering up inauthentic or empty worship. They've been unfaithful in their lives and in their marriages. And the Lord is going to tell them these things, but he doesn't begin that way. What is the first thing he says? I have loved you. He's going to bring before the people all of these accusations, but he's going to begin with an assurance. And the words are not, I used to love you, or I loved you in the past. The the sense of the word is very much, I have loved you, and I still love you. If you count yourself among God's people today, that is also true for you. So as you are sitting in the place of the people in the time of Malachi and you're dissatisfied and you're frustrated and you're concerned and you're worried, you are to remember as of first importance that God loves you and he still loves you. He's going to begin with assurance, even though he's going to correct his people, he's going to connect with them first. Have you ever tried to uh, correct someone that you uh, are not connected with? <laughs> Some... I may have occasionally. Um, Just as a test, find someone that you know does not like you and offer them some unsolicited advice. Have you ever been given advice from someone that you don't like or don't respect? Yeah, Yeah. occasionally, right? I have. No one here, don't worry. But someone's like, you need to be kinder with your words. And I'm like, I'm going to be even less kind now. Anybody, Anybody identify with that feeling at all? God doesn't treat his people that way. He reminds them of his longstanding relationship with them. He reminds them of his love for them. Because you can take very, very sharp words from someone you know is sacrificed for you, has been generous with you, has persisted alongside you, has carried burdens with you. Do you know what I mean? God loves his people. And we learn at least three things about his love in this section. First is this. God's love is displayed. God's love is displayed. Just read again with me the first few verses. We read the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. just want to say that the Lord declares to his people, I have loved you. And the people say, hmm. Prove it. How have you loved us? What a bold response to the Lord of the universe who spoke everything into, into creation to being and, and holds all the molecules of the universe together. Uh, he says, I have loved you. And they're like, eh. <laughs> like if you were like at my house for dinner and my wife said, I love you. And I was like, prove it. <laughs> you would be like, uh-oh. It's gonna be an awkward dinner now. I think something is wrong in this guy's heart. Something's wrong in that relationship. That is not the way you respond to someone when they say, I love you. They respond this way because they're dissatisfied. They've come back from exile expecting a great return of God's great people, and it has been underwhelming. Probably at this point, their economy is broken. Probably at this point, they're being pushed around by all other nation groups around them. The temple that they've rebuilt is not as glorious as the former one all kinds of things that they want, that they don't have, that they believe God has promised them. They're wondering where those things are. So when God says, I have loved you, they look around at their lives, like some of us do. And they're like, I'm not sure I believe you. God needs to prove to them, to their minds, that he loves them. And what he's going to do is he's going to offer them a bigger picture. I'll I'll give you a metaphor. How many of you have kids? Yeah, okay. Um, You ever have great days with your kids? So Someone's like, you can have those? Yeah. You can. And I don't even mean like, uh, I mean just like a great day from the kid's perspective, right? Like, you know, like popcorn and candy and you go, you go to the park and you play soccer and they watch a movie that they like or you go to a theme park. You know what I'm talking about? Like Chicken McNuggets and, and Happy Meal toys and getting to play in the play pit. You know what I'm talking about? You understand? You, like a kid's dream, right? You can give a kid a perfect day, 100 out of 100, just nonstop fun. And you know how it changes everything? Is at the end of the day, you say, you know what time it is? And they look at you like, what time is it? You're like, bedtime. (laughs) And then it does not matter what you did that day at all. My kids treat bedtime like a thing that they've never experienced before. (laughs) I have put my kids to bed thousands of times There has never been a single day where at the end of the day I go, you know what, kids? No bedtime tonight. We're just going to party all through the night, start the next day, no sleeping. They have gone to bed every night. Every night they act like they've never heard of the concept of bedtime before. We can have an amazing time. And then as soon as their situation changes, I go from their friend to their enemy. I could, and I have, point out to them all the great things that we did that day. I could and I have explained to them why bedtime is good for them. I can do a number of different things that would be designed to help them understand that they should trust me when their life is going well and when their life isn't going well to their minds. God is going to prove to the Israelites that he loves them. He's going to answer an impetulant question. They say, how have you loved us? And here's how he responds. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And and the Lord says back, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Okay, when you read that, you're like, I don't understand exactly how that's proof that God loves them. And you saw that word hate, I'm sure, at the beginning, and you're like, let's talk about that. Not yet. We will. We will talk about it, but we're not going to talk about it yet. The Lord is describing to them a story of two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau are the sons of Isaac Isaac being one of the early patriarchs, the followers of God in, in Genesis. And Jacob and Esau do not get along. They do terrible things to each other. And then they grow into two different nations. Jacob becomes which nation? Israel. Yes, good. Okay, here's a harder one. And Esau becomes which nation? Edom. Edom. Well done, guys. I mean, no additional points awarded, but well done. Jacob becomes Israel and and Esau becomes Edom. And these two nations don't get along. They've never really been allied with each other. They don't think well of each other. And remember how I was saying earlier that the Jews, the Israelites, are taken out into captivity into Babylon. While that's happening, the Edomites, they're pretty pumped about it. We read about this in in Obadiah. Uh, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever on the day that you stood aloof. On the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. What we see is that as as the Jews, as, as the Israelites, are being disciplined by the Lord at the hands of the Babylonians, as their world is collapsing around them, as their wealth is being plundered, as many of them, I'm sure, are being killed, as many of them are being dragged off into captivity, their brother nation is sitting by gleefully taking it in and sometimes participating. They don't have a peaceful relationship. And what what God is doing when he's talking to the Israelites, he's he's contrasting their destinies. Because while the Israelites were out in captivity, the Edomites fell as well. They were destroyed, their territory shrunk, and eventually them as a nation would cease to exist. God is saying to the Israelites, you're asking me, have I loved you? How have I loved you? Well, you're back. The Edomites are not. I've kept my promises to you. I never made promises to the Edomites. You're complaining and you're frustrated. But in what world does a nation get brought into captivity and then freed from it back to the land they were originally on? The Edomites are not back. You are back. The Lord is not just declaring his love. He's displaying it. He's not just telling them he loves them. He is showing them how he has loved them. Has anyone here ever experienced fake loves from someone? You're like, yeah. (laughs) What's fake love? Saying that you love someone, but definitely not in any way acting in their favor. It's when you're like, oh, I love that guy a lot. (laughs) But, and then you begin to talk bad about them behind their back talking about how you love someone without actually loving them the substance of love the substance of love um is displaying your love someone it's acting in favor of someone else the substance of love is is not the feelings you have those are good those are the the outcome of love but loving someone is acting usually at cost to yourself in their favor it's okay to feel love It is far better to display love. I think when we think about God loving us, we have this picture of like him on his throne, just like smiling down on us, just feeling great feelings of love. And that's not really the way the Bible talks about God's love for us. It primarily talks about God's love for us in terms of what he has done for us. So in Malachi, we hear that the Lord has restored his people, but not the Edomites because he made a promise to his people. We read about what in the New Testament? Jesus. Romans 8, Paul says this. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul doesn't say God really, really feels strong feelings of love. Paul says, God loved us. Let me show you how you know that he loves us. Or John 3:16. You guys know this verse? Yeah. Don't don't say it with me. One time I I used this in a sermon and everyone read it along with me. It was kind of awkward. <laughs> for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Go back to verse 16 for me. You guys see that word so right there? Yeah, And maybe um, in Awanas a long time ago or whatever, you read this passage and you memorized it and you thought, oh, the word so, it's, it's about quantity. God loved us so much that he sent his son. That's not actually what that word means there. It's not referring to quantity or degree of love. It's referring to means or method. It can be translated in this way. In this way, God loved us. What way? That he sent his only son. If you were to ask the question, how did God love us? How does God love us? The Bible answers the question by saying, uh, through, through his son, whom he sent to die on our behalf. Is there anybody here? And you don't have to raise your hand, it's fine. Who is in the middle right now? You're aware of what God has done. You're aware of what God is going to do. But you're experiencing frustration or confusion, or concern, or anxiety, or sadness? Has last year been overall one of your better ones? For some people, maybe, but for many people, no. I was trying to make a practice this last year as things would not usually go the way I wanted to count the things that God has given me that are good. Anybody do that this year? It's helpful. I think many people are in a spot of believing that Jesus has died for them, and they believe that Jesus has, uh, will return. And they're very much like the people in Malachi's day where they're dissatisfied with their life. And there is nothing more powerful for those of you right now, right now who are in times of distress, because certainly there are people here right now in distress and in crisis. There's nothing more powerful than looking to the cross and being reminded that at the cross, Jesus carried a far greater burden than you ever could, and he gave you far more than you could ever need. In moments of distress in my life, where things are not going the way that I want, where I ask the question, Where is God right now? the response is, Look at the cross over and over again in your life. It is an unlimited resource of strength to persist in faithfulness and to persist in obedience because of what Jesus has already done. Amen? Amen. Secondly, God's love is unconditional. Read with me uh, like the second half of two through four. God's response is not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Does it make you uncomfortable at all? You guys afraid to say that it? it makes you uncomfortable? I read a lot of um, stuff on this passage, and it's amazing to me how many people read this passage, and they're like, well, that's not acceptable. We have to make that a little bit softer <laughs> for people who hear it. And I want to begin just by saying this. I, I, I do think there's ways to understand this passage that are more intelligible to us, that make more sense. But I don't want you to hear that, me defending the passage. Um, and what I mean by this is, uh, when, you, when you come across something in the Bible that makes you uncomfortable... The problem is not the Bible. (laughs) Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. Um, And uh, I have, in the past, read things in the Bible that have made me uncomfortable, and my tendency is to go, well, that that can't be right. That makes me uncomfortable. I try and, like, read around it in different ways and understand it in different ways. And what we need to understand is the Bible has, for many, 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 many hundreds of years, thousands of years, uh, offended people for different reasons in a variety of ways, um, and regularly, throughout all of history, people have said, that can't possibly be what the Bible means. Um, and everyone does this, just to be clear. I usually hear um, people say, oh, young people these days, reading the Bible the way they want, or, or young people saying, old people these days, reading the Bible the way they want. Uh, you know who reads the Bible the way they want? Everyone. everyone. Every, everyone. <laughs> so in one sense, I want to be clear, I'm not defending this. I'm not, not trying to... Make it easier for you to hear. I do, I do want to try and explain it so it at least makes more sense. Um, so we hear the word hate and in our, our, like it kind of like triggers our ears and we think God hates someone. Uh, the first thing we need to say is God's emotions are not the same as our emotions. We experience them in the world and it kind of just instills in us a sense of joy or frustration or anger uh, God's emotions are a little bit different. It's not as if we're talking about the burning passion of running outside and seeing someone being beat up and you jump into the fight. It's, it's not that sort of thing. It, it is a more um, subdued, consistent, eternal disposition towards someone. Sometimes people say that, that these words are about preference. That when the Lord says, I loved Jacob, but Esau I hated, um, that, that what he means is, I really like Jacob a whole lot and Esau just a little bit less. I don't really think that's fully capturing what's happening here either. I think the best way to understand it is in terms of the way kings would talk about each other when, when books like the book of Malachi were being written. A king would say that he loved a king from another nation if he was allied with that king, if they were in a treaty or an alliance. And he would say he hated a king from another nation if he were at war with that king. It had very little to do with the feelings in his heart and more to do with the way that he is related to that particular king, is he allied with them, or is he at war with them? But really to understand the gravity of this passage, we have to understand the predicament of humankind. I'm probably going to offend some people. I think that um, that one, one of the reasons we come to passages like this, and they stress us out is because we either misremember or misunderstand the Bible. I, I mentioned two brothers earlier. Do you guys remember those brothers' names? Yeah, Jacob and Esau, right? And we think about Jacob and Esau, and we think back on the stories of Jacob and Esau, and it's very easy for us and natural for us to kind of put them into good example, bad example category. There's the good brother and the bad brother, the good son and the bad son, and we look back on stories about their lives, and we think, yeah, yeah, these are lessons for how we should live. One of the earlier stories is uh, the story of of Esau selling his birthright. What does he sell it for? Does anyone remember? (laughs) Bowl of soup, bowl of soup. I have never wanted soup that bad in my life. <laughs> Your birthright. He comes in, he's exhausted. Jacob's made some amazing soup because he's had a very different skill set than his brother. <laughs> and Esau's hungry. And so he's like, yeah, you know what? You can have my birthright. I really need some soup right now. <laughs> okay, yeah, so we, the, the good son and the bad son, there's Jacob, the intelligent, wise son, and there's Esau, the dummy, who sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. Like the lesson is, make good choices, be like Jacob, not like Esau. And then you continue in the story, and you have another story of Jacob and Esau, and it's the story in which Jacob steals Esau's blessing from Isaac, their father. Isaac has, has gone blind, or nearly blind. And he's going to offer a blessing to his son, and Esau is going to be the one to get the blessing. And, and, and Jacob and his, his mother, they hatch a plan to steal the blessing that's meant to go to Esau. And I'm not joking here, because Esau was hairier than Jacob, they slay a goat and they use the hair of the goat on Jacob's arms and the back of his neck to deceive their father Isaac into giving the blessing to Jacob instead of Esau. And it works. And so we read that story like, okay, good son, bad son, good son Jacob, Uh, I should deceive people for my own gain. Yes, that's, is not a story of a good son and a bad son, a good brother and a bad brother. It's a story of two evil brothers. One whom God rescued, one whom God passed over. And this becomes like a symbol for how we should understand people in the rest of the Bible. Sometimes people in the Bible stand out as heroes of faith whom we should follow whom we should model our lives after. But none of them, none of them, are overall perfect or even very good. And basically all of them commit heinous, egregious sin. And these two brothers, Jacob and Esau, become two wicked nations, Israel and Edom. If you read the story of Israel, are they always righteous? How often do they do despicable things The point is not that Israel or Edom is worse or better than us. The point is this. Everyone, everyone who has ever existed, bar one, is actually evil. Is actually, at their heart, the core of their heart, one who has rebelled against God. Uh, And I'm not making this up. Uh, Paul says it in Romans. He says this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible is not a story about some people who do good so God loves them. The Bible is a story about how everyone has turned their face against God, has rebelled against God, has committed egregious, evil, heinous sin, some of whom God graciously and mercifully rescues, and some of whom he passes over and leaves them to the destruction of their own sin. The real question, I think, is this. I get asked this question all the time when I interact with people, like, in, in academia or even just, like, out on the street. They're like, I don't get it. Why wouldn't God just rescue everyone? Why wouldn't God rescue everyone? I'm like, I think it's the wrong question. I think the real question is this. Why does God rescue anyone? We ask, why? Why did God love Jacob? Some of you ask, why did God choose me? We can read this in Deuteronomy. This is, this is uh, the Lord talking to his people before they go into the promised land. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt he asked why did God choose Israel not because of Israel we read like this in the New Testament as well Paul Paul is actually going to quote Malachi in Romans he's actually going to quote the passage we just read and and here's how he understands it and by the way people ask me what's the best commentary on the Old Testament the New Testament (laughs) that's where you should start lots of good commentaries in the Old Testament start with the New Testament Uh, Paul says, For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing. See that, nothing? Nothing. Either good or bad. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who what mercy. has mercy. This passage, in some sense, sounds like a warning to Edom. It's less that. It's more of an assurance to Israel, to God's people. We're reminded even here that the love of God is unconditional. It is not conditioned on anything to do with us. You can't earn it. It's not for sale. You can't discover it with the powers of your mind. Or achieve it by the exertion of your actions or your will. And very, very importantly, Hope Chapel, you cannot lose it. God's love for you does not depend on you. Do you you hear that? Just, it's such a crucial truth. God's love for you does not depend on you. If it did, you would lose it. This does two things, I think, this truth. This truth of God's unconditional love for his people. One is it kills the pride of those who have come to believe that they've earned God's favor. If that's you, let that truth that God's love is unconditional kill your pride. You did not earn it. You never could. It also does this. It gives rest to those people Who are obsessed and consumed with the fear of having failed God. Rest. That's you. Take rest. God's love for you does not depend on you. It is unconditional. It is due to his goodness, not yours, that you are loved. That's why we can read passages like this and they actually have meaning. They're actually true. In Romans, Paul says this. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is a bomb to the ears of the Israelites. It is a resource. It is a source of comfort for them and for us to hear that God's love for us does not depend on us, but on his mercy. And because he's the Lord of the universe, the one who created everything, the one through whom all things will be gathered together, no one can stop him from loving us. No one else, and not even you. God's love is unconditional. Amen? Amen. Lastly, God's love is expansive. Read verse 5 with me. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Um, and I'm saying here that I think this section is teaching us the expansiveness of God's love, but if we go down a little bit further, um, breaking into to Mike's section early, sorry, man, uh, we can read this. Hopefully. For from the rising of the sun... To its setting, my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. Okay. Uh, There's a sense in which the Bible is a story of God expanding those who are counted among his people. It began with one man. Who's that man? Abraham, Abraham is called by God and he obeys, he has faith and it's reckoned to him as righteousness and then Abraham's family and Abraham becomes a nation called Israel and Israel produces a Messiah. What's his name? What's his name? Jesus. Jesus. And Jesus becomes the Messiah through his death and his resurrection for whom anyone who calls on his name, on the name of Jesus might be saved. And now there is no such thing as any barrier into the people of God for any person who simply turns in faith and repentance. I sometimes worry about tomorrow. Does anybody here ever worry about tomorrow? Sometimes. A few people. All the time. I don't know how tomorrow will go. But I know how everything ends. Look at uh, this. We We have the end. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Church, that God loves you, that one. We stand on one side of the cross and we stand before the return of Jesus Christ. He is worthy to trust because of what he has already done. And he is worthy to hope in because of what we can be sure he will do. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for these words in the book of Malachi that you have lovingly preserved as your word for us, even now, so far away from this place and so much later than this time, that we can remember you're the God who never changes. That you keep your promises that when you love your people, you don't stop loving your people? I pray for those of us who are here this morning, who are like Israel in the time of Malachi, struggling, that you would offer them the assurance of your love. Remind them of how you have already loved them. For those who don't know you, I pray you tear down their pride. That you offer them faith and repentance. That they see that they need a rescuer and that only you can actually rescue them. We pray all these things in the great name of your son, Jesus. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.